0: Well, thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us to the throne of God this morning. Um, and, uh, amen. yeah, thank you, guys. And uh, if we will, let's continue that spirit uh, in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us, uh, Lord, this morning to, uh, to see, uh, to feel, to taste your love poured out over us. Uh, Lord, may our souls cry, cry out hallelujah uh, as we behold the good news of Jesus. Uh, Father, continue uh, the work that your Spirit's already begun in us and through us as your Word is opened uh, and brought this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, so for my kids' school, uh, we memorize a timeline, uh, and it's a series of historical events, and the idea being that as they continue to memorize, and they don't necessarily know what they mean, but eventually once they get a little older, they can start connecting those events together, uh, that leads to some interesting moments in our house. So we got a text from a friend of ours whose child is a little bit younger than ours but is also memorizing the uh, the same timeline. And she asked us who some guy in Africa is. And you're like, some, what do you mean? And she's like, well, listen to it. In the timeline, along with all these important events, is some guy in Africa. And it's like, if he's that important, why don't we know his name? So my wife and I went back and um, listened to the, the song, Waiting for Some Guy in Africa. And we realized uh, that it's the Songhai Empire, the African trading state of the 15th century, uh, that's presented in the timeline as Songhai in Africa, Uh, and so uh, we uh, chuckled about that, and our kids were disappointed to know that there were no stories forthcoming about this African man of mystery uh, that they were going to learn about at a date to be named later. But catechisms right, follow the same pattern, um, at least in religious instruction, which is giving kids, typically, or new converts, information that maybe we don't know exactly uh, what that means or what to do with it, but just allowing that truth to marinate in in our hearts as we continue to to meditate on it. Um, And one of the questions that the the New City Catechism asks, the one that um, our church, we have copies of it in the bookstore if you want to get one on your way out, Um, but one of those questions and answers goes like this. If no one can keep the law perfectly, what is its purpose? It's kind of the question that Paul's been leading up to to this point, right? If no one can keep the law perfectly, then what's the point of all the law? It's a lot of space in our Bibles if no one can do it perfectly. And the Catechism answers the question this way that we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need for a Savior. That we may know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. So Paul has been leading up to our own some guy in Africa moment, right? He's been getting us to this point so that we can now reframe the question, how can I keep the law perfectly? How can I be good enough to measure up to God's standard for my life? How can I hit the mark? And Paul says, okay, not some guy in Africa, some guy, right? He's saying, okay, swap the question around. No one can keep the law perfectly. So the new question is, then what's the point of it? If what I've said is true, if sin is total, if it's wrecked our individual lives, our society, our culture, it's wrecked every part of us in some way, shape, or form, if that's true, then what are we doing with it? Why have it? Why bother paying attention to it? Why write the first three chapters of Romans? Why not just start with the good news, right? Skip a lot of time. But we've seen over the past few weeks, whether we're talking about the moral law, so think ethical behavior, Ten Commandments, right, doing the right thing, or whether we're um, whether we're talking about the, uh, the sacrificial system, right? The religious rites. Uh, so think of like the Jewish sacrificial system, doing these sacrifices day in, week in, month in. Uh, whether, we're, whether when we talk about the law, we're talking about either one of those things or both. That's the Torah, right? That's the law that Paul is talking about. We can't do any of those perfectly. They don't accomplish the purpose of helping us hit the mark perfectly helping us be righteous before God. They don't make us truly holy, good, or righteous people. Actually, Paul's made the point, apart from the grace of God, they can actually make us worse. We've caught that over the past couple of weeks as well, that apart from the grace of God transforming us, if we focus so much on the moral law, we become legalistic and judgmental people. We begin to compare ourselves to the right and the left and say, one, either pridefully, I'm better than the person next to me, or we reach a point of despair and say, I could never reach the level of that person next to me. Neither one of those is helpful for righteousness. If we focus so much on aligning ourselves with the right religious practices and religious rights, uh, we end up becoming more divisive or maybe ethnocentric. We base our righteousness on our religious and cultural affiliations rather than on the righteousness of Christ. So to sum up in modern terms, where we are today as we arrive in Romans 3.21, neither being a good moral person, nor being a good conservative Texan, or properly socially aware liberal American, or anything else is going to cure what ails us. None of these things are going to fix the deep-seated problems of sin in our lives. Because that's not what they're supposed to do. That's not the point of them. So we hear that in verse 20 leading up to our passage this morning of Romans 3, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because knowledge of sin comes through works of the law. So they prepare our hearts and our minds, right? They tee up our hearts to receive the good news of the grace of God. They get us ready. They help us see the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts. If you've been here the past few weeks, hopefully you've caught that. Hopefully you've seen the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of your heart and thus your need for a Savior. Paul's not embarking on a novel idea here. He's not making this up out of thin air. You can hear it all over the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 143 too. In your faithfulness, answer me, God. In Your righteousness Enter not into judgment With your servant for no one living Is righteous before you Does that sound familiar? No one is righteous, no not one No one understands, no one seeks God Answer me, the psalmist says Not according to my righteousness Don't answer me because I'm righteous Answer me according to your righteousness Outside of myself By the grace of God, answer me That's Old Testament That's preparing us for the gospel that we're going to hear this morning. So as we arrive at Romans 3, verse 21, there are two questions that Paul has been building to that we finally get some answers to, or at least the beginning of some answers to. And the two questions are this. Given how sin has broken us, how it's infiltrated every aspect of our world and our lives, it's part and parcel of who we are. It's part and parcel of where we live, what we do, everything. Everything. Given that reality, number one, how can we be righteous people? If that's true, if sin has broken everything about us, how can we be righteous people? And number two, if that's true and sin has broken everything, how could we call God a righteous God? As we look out on the world that is marred by sin and stained by sin and the effects of sin reach everywhere, far and wide, how could we call God a righteous God? so let's tackle the first one together number one how can we be righteous people well hopefully if you've been here the past couple weeks the answer is clear not through moral performance right not through being a morally good person and trying to help enough old ladies across the street to kind of win some kudo points with god that's that's not the formula paul's advocating for right that's not going to work also, right, not joining the perfect church or denomination and affiliating yourself with the perfect stream of Christianity and continuing to narrow it down until you find the perfect version. Right? That's not going to work. Finding the exact right liturgy and religious rites, those things aren't unimportant, but they're not what saves us. right? So then how do we measure up? Just to mention last week, the idea of sin is missing the mark right, as an archery term. Well then, the question then comes, if we are constantly missing the mark. How do we hit the mark? How do we get there? How do we hit a bullseye when it comes to righteousness? A lot of answers have been proposed. Mike Byrd in his commentary on Romans says it this way, in my short time as a follower of Jesus, I've had people tell me that in order to be saved, I need to speak in tongues, partake of some sacrament, only read the KJV, subscribe to a certain confession, believe in this diagram of the end times, jump through a dozen other hoops that seem to serve the purpose only of validating the rantings of some lunatic with an opinion and a desperate desire to force it on others. Fortunately for me, I was well-discipled by Christian leaders, where the pastors were committed to biblical preaching, so I never got suckered into the Jesus Plus stairway to heaven. But sadly, many do. It is a tempting formula to say, yes, Jesus and this. And this idea of measuring up with things inside of ourselves is not unique to kind of goofy religious practices either, is it? Most of us carry baggage of wanting to measure up uh, to expectations and, and our, that our parents may have had for us, to measure up to ideas of respect in our career or at work, to measure up to ideas of what makes a good wife and a good mother based on what different cultures might tell us. We all have this hunger to measure up. And Paul finally tells us how it is that we actually do measure up in verse 22 of Romans chapter 3. Where does the righteousness of Christ, of God, come from? The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Did you hear where it comes from? It doesn't come from being a good wife or good mother, right? It doesn't come from measuring up to expectations that parents have set. It doesn't come from career and success there. It comes through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Okay, that's a very nice religious answer, right? What does that mean? Well, first of all, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It runs contrary to what we would consider common sense. Common sense tells you God helps those who help themselves, right? Common sense tells you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, get your life together, and then God will come along and supplement what you're doing, and you'll have a nice life. You'll have a righteous life. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, trust in yourself. God helps those who help themselves, so go help yourself. Then he says, it comes from outside of you. It comes from God. You must trust in him. He says, place your hope in this righteousness that's outside of yourself. Like the psalmist, answer me, not in my righteousness, but calling out to God, asking him to answer us according to his righteousness. It could only be a gift. You can only give it to me because it's a gift. You can't give it to me because there's anything in me that might be worthy of it. It has to come from you. You see the gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. The good news of the gospel is that God only helps those who realize they cannot help themselves. In this way faith is it's an act of desperation. Faith is coming to the end of yourself, realizing you have nowhere else to turn but casting yourself on the provision of God who might answer you according to his righteousness. And the good news of the gospel, the news that Paul has been building to, is that God does answer us according to his righteousness. As we reach the end of ourselves, the moment of despair, and we have nowhere else to turn, and we call out to our Heavenly Father, like a good father, he answers us. He always responds in the affirmative. He does not leave us cast aside. The poet Oscar Wilde, reflecting on his time in prison, wrote it this way, "'Happy those whose hearts can break and peace of pardon win. "'How else may man make straight his plan "'and cleanse his soul from sin? "'How else but through a broken heart "'may Lord Christ enter in? "'How else but through a broken heart? "'How else but despair, frustration, "'reaching the end of ourselves,' would the Lord Christ lead us to a point where we would place our faith in His righteousness, in His goodness? If you feel this morning that you've arrived here in the process of being broken, of reaching despair, of getting to the end of yourself and not really having many other options and where you might turn, there's good news this morning that this could be exactly the place that God wants you to be because that is the place at which you'll find real hope place at which you'll find real good news. Good news that can cure what ails you. You are now that much closer to understanding the true nature of faith. You say, okay, pastor, that's helpful, but what does that have to do with me measuring up? You had an astounding introduction that drew me in and hooked me, and I am here and ready and eager to hear what you have to say. You haven't answered that question yet about... Okay, faith in Christ to do what exactly? Faith, faith is this abstract term, right? I can't manufacture faith. I can't make faith appear. What am I trusting Christ to do? Well, Paul's going to tell us, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, they are justified freely by his grace. So there are a couple of things that Jesus does for us. Number one, he justifies us. He is our justification. That's a theological word that simply means God forgives us in Christ. He forgives us. You may have heard before that God freely forgives, right? God gives away his forgiveness. I know what we mean by this. It's true in a sense, and it's also not true in a sense. Because you may have heard in economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? There's no such thing as free. Forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness always costs someone. So if I forgive a debt... Right? If I loan you some money and you say I can't pay it and I forgive that debt, who pays for that debt? Right? It doesn't just disappear and I now own that debt. I'm allowing it to be forgiven and absorbing the cost on myself. It's my bank account that takes the hit. The same is true emotionally, right? If if you choose to bear the wound that someone has committed against you and forgive them rather than extracting um, a cost through bitterness or vengeance or all the other ways that we try to extract a cost from people, you instead forgive emotionally. Who bears the cost of that wound, the person who offended you or you? Well, you, right? You have to bear the, the pain of not seeking vengeance, not meeting it out with seasons of bitterness, but instead leaving it to God and bearing the emotional wound yourself. All forgiveness, then, is costly. There is no such thing as truly free Forgiveness, it always costs someone. And what justification means is that in the cross, God absorbs the cost of our forgiveness. He takes it upon himself. Another word for this, the way this happens is imputation. That simply means to credit. What happens on the cross, according to Paul, what justification means is that God credits us with Jesus' righteousness, And he credits Jesus with our unrighteousness. In other words, he takes all of the curse that we were due because of our sin and places it upon Jesus. And he takes all of the blessing that Jesus was due because of his glorious, perfect life. He takes that and places it in our account. So that when he looks at you and me, he no longer sees the one who does not measure up and the one who does not hit the mark. As we trust in Christ, as we place our faith in Christ, we are united to Jesus. So that when God looks at you and me, he sees the perfection of Jesus. He sees the one who did heal heal the leper. He sees the one who did not cast aside his disciples, even as they betrayed him. He sees the one who washed the feet of others rather than selfishly taking care of himself. That's who he sees as he looks at you and at me, because we are justified. Christ gets what we deserve, and in exchange, he gives us what he deserves. The Reformers called this a glorious exchange. It's a trade. Jesus takes our debt and gives us his credit. Wield says it this way in his poem, With tears of blood he cleansed the hand, The hand that held the steel. For only blood can wipe out blood, And only tears can heal. And the crimson stain... That was of Cain, became Christ's snow white seal. He took Cain's crimson stain and placed upon you and me, like Cain, his snow white seal of approval. How can you be righteous? Faith in Christ. He can justify you. This is why the Reformers would say that we can be simultaneously just and sinner. In other words, you could say, I am a sinner, right? I sinned this morning and yesterday, right? And the day before I'm constantly battling sin. And yet I stand justified because God's not looking at my account. He's looking at Jesus's account. He's crediting it to me. I am justified in Christ. In other words, one commentator has said, we are saved by works, just not our own. All right, we're saved by works, indeed. We are saved by the works of Christ, imputed, credited, taken from him, and placed onto us. We are justified in Christ. He is also our redemption. That is, in Christ, God frees us. Second half of verse 24, we are justified freely, right? not earned, but freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, what is redemption? Redemption. I'll give you a, uh, a modern example. So it's a bit tripe, but it is what it is. Um, so if I get a coupon from Groupon or whatever, right, for a free turkey around Thanksgiving, and I get free turkey and I'm going to HEB, it says there, free turkey for, it doesn't say for Brandon, but free turkey for holder of coupon, whatever. <laughs> just, just roll with it. It's, a, it's an example. <laughs> I, I worked really hard on it. Um, so I go to HEB, right, and I, I print it off, I take it there. As we said before, right, remember, the turkey isn't really free. Somebody's paid for it, right? Somebody's paid for this turkey, whether it's uh, the turkey manufacturer because they want the free advertising, whether it's HEB because they want to lure you in the store to buy more stuff than just that turkey. Somebody's taking the cost of the turkey, but it's not you because you have a coupon, right? What do we call it when you take a coupon right, and give it to someone and get something that Somebody else paid for. Call it redeeming it, right? I redeemed my coupon. Now, even more than the grocery store, who paid the real price for the turkey? Well, the, the turkey, right? Um, <laughs> the turkey is the one who paid the ultimate price. Um, yeah, with its life. So now that I've compared Jesus to a turkey, let's, let's get back to the... Um, let's get away from Groupon and go back to the Bible. So another, another example, biblically of redemption, uh, well, really the primary example that's all throughout Scripture, right, is Exodus. God redeems his people from Egypt. He frees them through nothing they really did, right? God works on their behalf to free them from slavery. He judges their enemies, and that judgment culminates with the final judgment, the judgment of the Passover lamb, right, and the taking of the firstborn son, and you remember the way that it happened? Uh, those who sacrificed a lamb and wiped the blood of the lamb over their door, the angel of death, the angel of judgment, passed over right, those homes, and those who did not did not get passed over, right? and received the judgment of God. So in this death of another, right in this blood over the door. God simultaneously provided physical, economic, and spiritual freedom to His people. They left so they could worship God in the wilderness. And you see, in becoming our redemption, Christ is taking the title of our true Passover Lamb. He paid the price for us in order to free us from the bondage, not to the Egyptians, but to sin and the slavery of sin. That's why when Jesus shows up and begins to preach in Luke chapter 4, he quotes from the Old Testament. It says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to proclaim redemption, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free, to redeem the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Do you this morning feel trapped by sin? Maybe it's an addiction that you can't break. Maybe it's a pursuit of wealth that's led you to the hamster wheel of burnout in your career. Maybe you feel trapped by the sin of another against you. Condescending words spoken by an angry parent or spouse that you can't shake and they've begun to define you and you feel trapped in that definition of yourself. Jesus speaks a new word this morning from John chapter 8. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus can redeem you, He can buy you back. He can pay the price to set you free so that you no longer live in Egypt making bricks of slavery, but you go out in freedom to the promised land with Him. He is our redemption. He does it by paying the price, not with the blood of a lamb, but with his own life. Brothers and sisters, your spiritual freedom is not free, but it is paid for. So that's the beginning of Paul's answer to his first question. In light of sin, how can we be righteous? Christ justifies us. Christ redeems us. Right, that's just question number one. The second question Paul wants to answer here. Is the question of, in light of sin then, how is God righteous? Not just how are we righteous, that's an important question, one especially for us. But it's not the only question that sin demands. You see, we've talked a lot so far about God's saving righteousness, the righteousness that He gives to us as a gift to redeem us. He places it upon us as we trust in Him. But Paul is now going to flip between his saving righteousness and his judging righteousness. And he's going to do that because God's saving righteousness and his judging righteousness are really just two sides of the same coin. They are one and the same. They show up differently, but they come from the same place. They come from God's holiness, his love of justice and righteousness. So as we look out on a world full of suffering, full of betrayal and abuse and selfish ambition, we often wonder, or at least I do, How could God let this happen? How could God allow this to happen and just shrug His shoulders at what's happening in the world, both immediately around me and globally? We hear of suffering left and right, and we wonder, where's God in all this? What's He going to do about this? We're not the first ones to wonder. We go back to Psalm 143 again. The psalmist asks the same question. The enemy has pursued my soul. Have you felt like this recently? He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. Have you been appalled at the world around you? Have you been appalled at your heart within you? psalmist knows how you feel, and so does Paul, because he says God is not just our Savior. He is also our judge. We hear old echoes of that biblical word ringing out, right? wrath. We sang about that this morning. Wrath is just a biblical word for God's judging righteousness. His righteousness that expresses itself as judgment. And these, this word and this idea is often difficult for us to stomach, isn't it? It's hard to hear about God's wrath. That sounds antiquated and angry. But I would argue that our difficulty here with God's wrath is more a perspective of privilege and comfort than anything. We presume too much when we criticize God's wrath. People who have been oppressed or abused or suffered deeply are often much more quick to connect God's wrath and God's love together. They have a much more difficult time drawing clear dividers between, well, here's God's saving righteousness over here, and here's God's judging righteousness over here, and I really just want one. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf explains his own experience this way. He says, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. When we are forced to take a look past our own four walls of manufactured comfort and entertainment, we see the suffering in our world. Whether the war ravaging Ukraine or the tumor ravaging our coworker. And as we see this, we, with the psalmist, are led to cry out, How long, O Lord? How long will you appear silent? How long must we wait for you to move in the direction of justice? When will you show yourself to be righteous? God, my righteousness, when will you be righteous? When will you do the right thing? How could you let this go on? Why don't you pour out your wrath on dictators and oppressors and and embezzlers and murderers? They are your enemies. They deserve your wrath. And yet, as Paul now joins in with the prophets before him, he pointedly tells us we are not merely victims of sin. We are, remember, also children of what? Wrath. You see, we do not want God to pour out his wrath on his enemies. Because as we saw last week, we too count ourselves among enemies, rebels of God and against God. You say, well, I'm not a dictator. I would never use my power that way. I would never selfishly prioritize my way of life and comfort over other people's flourishing. I always seek to love my neighbor as myself. I hear some of y'all in the restaurant on Sunday afternoon going Karen on that server, right? I know better. I'm not equating, right, treating a server like garbage and genocide. Those aren't the same thing. But they do come from the same place, don't they? They do come from the same posture of heart, which says, no, that's not my preference. It's not what I want. And it doesn't really matter what you want, or what might lead you to flourishing, because this is my way. So it leads dictators to go to war, to take countries, and it's what leads us to treat people as though they're not made in the image of God, as though they're something else. And this is what Paul means when he says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The spectrum of sin is not as wide as we think in comparison to the spectrum of holiness and righteousness. When standing next to Jesus, my righteousness is much closer to that of a death row inmate than his holiness. Far from revealing a malevolent deity, the reality of God's wrath reveals his patience with us. He has waited for thousands of years. He has passed over, Paul says, sin after sin after sin, waiting patiently for you to respond in faith. Our tongues are forked, our throats are graves. We rebel, and yet he gives us breath day after day after day. We get to see the view of the sun rising. We get to hear the sound of children laughing. We get to smell the scent of steaks cooking. And we ask, how could this be? How could God let that go? How could he continue to wait and wait and wait to steady his hand of judgment? against you and against me? And the answer is he is a patient God. In his mercy, he has passed over former sins. He did it for the evil kings of Babylon. He did it for his people as they disobeyed him in the book of Judges. Even so-called heroes in the Old Testament, right? Abraham in his deceit, God passed over. David in his abuse of power, God passed over. Moses as he began his ministry with manslaughter, God passed over. But he didn't burn the note of sin. He put it in an account. He put it on credit. And as that account began to bloat, right, and get bigger and bigger and bigger, as the Old Testament believers drew an account, and as we now draw an account of sin, it all gets put in to be paid at a later date. So we ask with the Israelites, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, who will by no means clear the guilty, how can you be both? How can you be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and not clear the guilty? We say, God, you have to pick one. You can either be just, or you can be merciful. You can either be nice, or you can be righteous. But there's no way you can be both. And this is the astounding message of the gospel. The judge, tasked with administering justice, took upon himself the cost of forgiveness. This leads us to our third theological word He is our propitiation. In Christ, God reconciles or makes atonement for us. All right, so I'm going to define propitiation for you. Propitiation is wrath appeasement. You say, great, pastor, you did that typical thing where you took one fancy theological word and gave me two. Um, So I'm going to go to the Bible again to give you a picture for those who prefer pictures to concepts. So We see this in, first of all, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented him, this is Paul's illustration, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, there's that word, God passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness so that he would be just and justified, the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see this? God presented him so the cross is the proclamation that God is not silent in the face of suffering. He uses the image of mercy seat. Mercy seat was on the, the Ark of the Covenant. Right? It was a lining of gold on the top of the Ark. Um, not Ark like the boat, but um, if you've seen Indiana Jones, right? Ark of the Covenant. Um, it, was the, it was the object inside of the tabernacle in which the Ten Commandments were, um, were placed. Right? It was also the, the place at which the sacrifice would happen. You can hear this in uh, Leviticus and in God's instruction for the day of atonement, right? Atonement, you can hear it in the actual word at one meant, right? It means reconciliation, becoming at one, bringing back together. On the day of atonement in Leviticus, these are God's instructions to the priest He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it, sprinkling it over the mercy seat, in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sin. Okay, so that you heard the blood gets splattered on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat on the day of atonement. Now, back to verse 25. Who is the mercy seat? According to Paul. Who is him? What's well, your Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. Jesus is the place of atonement covered in the blood of the sin offering, not the blood of a lamb, but his own blood. He makes a at one He brings reconciliation. He brings us and God together. In other words, what he is doing on the cross is restoring our intimacy with our creator. He's restoring a relationship that, because of our breach of trust, was broken. And he is bringing it back together, restoring no longer wrath, but love and intimacy with God. So you see here, the answer to our two questions is the same answer. How can we be righteous? How can God be righteous? Paul's astounding conclusion is the work of Jesus. He is the just and the justifier. At the cross, his mercy and his justice embrace. And this, Paul says, leads us to humility in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by a law of faith. You see, brothers and sisters, the test of whether we actually believe this or not is not Necessarily, and whether we can formulate it perfectly with exact precision—that's not unimportant. But the test is in our humility. The test of whether we are truly trusting in Jesus is in how we approach God and how we approach one another. Where then ours our boasting? It's nowhere, because it comes only from Jesus. We can only throw our credit upward; it can never go inward. The gospel is all about what God has done for us. In light of that, do we live lives more characterized by humble joy or by self-congratulatory division? The gospel is transformative. As we continue to believe this, to live this, we, like Paul, go from putting Christians in prison to writing letters from prison. We, like Peter, go from cowering in the corner denying Christ to preaching on the corner proclaiming Christ. The message that when the time was right, the eternal Son of God took on human flesh. He lived and breathed and healed and worked wonders. He lived a life worthy of God's blessing. And when his life was brought to an abrupt end, he gave himself up as the Passover lamb, taking God's curse upon himself and to the very end praying forgiveness over his enemies. He absorbed the cosmic weight of sin upon himself on the cross, becoming the seat at which we can sit and find mercy and rest. But that's not where the story ends. After three days, he conquered hell and death and walked out of the tomb and made good on God's last promise in Exodus 22. So I'm going to read the next verse. In Exodus 22, and I think we've got an image you can throw up as well, a sketch of what the Ark of the Covenant might have looked like. Set on the mercy seat on top of the Ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the Ark. I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the Ark. I will meet with you there between the cherubim. Mary Magdalene arrived at Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning, having watched Jesus take on the full weight of sin and death on Friday evening. She had seen him thrust in front of the people, his blood splattering the wood around him and pooling in front of him, underneath him. John tells us that in her grief and despair, Mary stood outside of Jesus' tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she bent over to look at the hole in the cave, right? And she saw, as she looked through that window, two angels, dressed in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. You see, the angels were there, but the mercy seat was not. It had moved. The mercy seat had gotten up It was no longer the place of crucifixion and blood and death, but it had walked out of the tomb. And as Mary turned around to see him, John tells us that this man asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, Mary said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus looked at her and called her by name. Mary I think it's likely that you've come to the tomb this morning To look in expecting death And despair Expecting blood and carnage And instead there are angels And as you look around in confusion There is a warm face That looks oddly familiar Whatever you brought Into the sanctuary this morning Jesus knows And yet he is looking you in the eye He is the mercy seat who whispers your name, reminding you again of your pardon, your freedom, your intimacy with God, paid in full and ready to take hold of if you would only reach out in faith to grasp him. He is our pardon. He is our peace. As we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, that is an act of faith. We look at the broken body of Christ. We drink of his blood, reaching out to him asking for nourishment, asking for him to apply that sacrifice that he made to us. If you, uh, if you would, take a moment. Uh, we're going to meditate on the, um, on the way that we take this. We're going to celebrate the way that Jesus has risen from the dead, even though his body was broken and his blood was poured out on the sea. It is now back in his veins and flowing through his veins as he reigns in heaven. So meditate on that. And if you um, have never responded... To Christ, if you have never responded in that kind of faith—the kind of faith that reaches out in despair and holds to Him and Him only—I um, would ask if we could have uh, maybe Justin in this corner and um, yeah, Adam maybe in that corner, um, and we have elders back here. If you would like to talk with someone on what it means to respond to Jesus in faith, if you would like counsel on um, what to do next, we'd love to talk with you about that. Um, but before we uh, do that, I am—I want to pray, and then uh, I'll ask the. Ushers to uh, begin to get ready and come forward after after we pray. Like I said, take a moment, reflect on Jesus, and then we'll take the supper together. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, are humbled. Lord, where is our boasting? We have no opportunity to boast, and yet we boast in Christ. Lord, we celebrate. We want to shout. Lord, how good how incredible your gospel is, that your justice and your righteousness and your mercy meet as one as we behold your love poured out for us. You literally, Lord Jesus, emptied yourself in order to fill us with your spirit. So we ask for you to continue that work as we take the supper now, that we would sense your nourishment, that we would see uh, the goodness in this visible picture of what it meant for your body to be broken and your blood to be poured out. Lord, continue to develop in us a hunger for more and more of this gospel. May we never leave it nor forsake it. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.